Corbynism the Postmortem is kindly sponsored by the Media Masters podcast, a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, hosted by Paul Blanchard. You can tune in anytime at mediamasters.fm. And now, here's the show. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. After defeating Gordon Brown's Labour in the 2010 general election, David Cameron and Nick Clegg's Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government were faced with a growing constitutional question posed by a resurgent Scottish Nationalist Party. In a manner that would ultimately encapsulate his doomed tenure as Prime Minister, Cameron agreed to the SNP's request for a referendum on Scottish independence. Cameron's gamble was based on two assumptions. Firstly, that a unionist victory was guaranteed, and secondly, thinking that victory would end the question mark over the Union for a generation. The first part of Cameron's gamble paid off, as the Labour Party campaigned alongside the coalition government and Scotland voted to remain part of the Union by a narrower than expected 10-point margin. But instead of ending it for a generation, the Scottish independence movement was galvanised and Cameron's naive, newfound confidence in winning referenda would eventually lead to the constitutional quagmire of Britain's exit from the European Union. Labour's support in Scotland collapsed following the referendum, and in the 2015 general election, Ed Miliband's party lost 40 out of their 41 seats, with only Edinburgh South's Ian Murray MP returning to Parliament. There is little doubt that as Miliband's successor, Jeremy Corbyn had his work cut out for him in Scotland, and, following the Brexit referendum, where Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain, Scottish political attitudes were moving further and further away from Westminster. While Corbyn's better-than-expected defeat in 2017 saw glimpses of a Scottish fight back as Labour gained six seats, they still finished third behind the Tory party, a prospect that had been unthinkable in Scotland for decades. Two years later, Scottish Labour were back down to just one MP. Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem. I'm your host, Oz Katerji, and on this episode, we'll be discussing whether Corbynism faced a Sisyphean task trying to win back support in Scotland. We'll also be assessing how they struggled to find the answers to the two constitutional questions dominating the Scottish political landscape. Joining me on part one of the show, we have Scottish journalist and former Labour political advisor Aisha Hazarika, and in part two, Labour's last man standing in Scotland and current deputy leadership candidate Ian Murray MP. So, without further ado, here's part one. Okay, Aisha, before I start talking about Corbyn and Scotland, can you tell me about Labour's troubles in Scotland, you know, pre-Miliband and how how Scotland was eventually lost? So I think this is really important. Uh, things went pretty disastrously um, under Jeremy Corbyn. They also went pretty disastrously under Ed Miliband. But the genesis of the problems in Scotland go back a long way. I think there's a couple of things. I think the primary reason why Labour's done so badly in Scotland is that we took Scotland for granted. Uh, When I was growing up, particularly in the west coast of Scotland, the sort of Glasgow side of Scotland, you know, Labour was like a pillar of society. There was the church, there was football, as in Rangers and Celtic, 
and there was the Labour Party. They were the sort of like established kind of bits of society that you always just relied on. Um, and then Rangers ended up getting relegated and the Labour Party crumbled. And people were just so shocked about this. It was it was such a political earthquake um, on the night of the 2015 general election campaign when we lost every single uh, MP but Ian Murray. And then, of course, again in 2019, the same thing happened again. But one of the things I always observed was this, which was if you were a talented politician in Scotland... Your goal was not to be a leading light in Scottish politics. Your goal was to sort of use your MP platform to sort of get out of Scotland and hot foot it down to Westminster and be a luminary on the London stage and maybe the international stage as opposed to the Scottish stage. And you saw that we had some, you know, we had some huge figures in Scottish politics for such a long time. Um, you know, Donald Dewar, Robin Cook, Gordon Brown, of course. But I think what happened is that people just took their backyards for granted. So Scotland was dominated by Scottish MPs, but also Scottish councillors. And everybody at every stage of the party became lazy from very small things in the community. And people felt that their councillors weren't really doing a good shift for them. They weren't sort of doing the things that councillors should be doing. It all became about sort of, um, you know, kind of the bad bit of politics, which is power grabbing and, you know, sort of corruption and, you know, not being very effectual. And then they would just see all these Scottish figures sort of prancing about in London. So you had that feeling, that sense of entitlement, that sense of taking the voters for granted. And as we have seen, um, that's happened now in in England. And I, uh, so, so you had all of that going on for a long, long time. And there was also a truth to the fact that the Scottish Labour Party really wasn't taken very seriously by Westminster and by London. Um, the Labour Party actually has gone through a number of leaders in Scotland, but there was a woman called Joanne Lamont. And when she left, she issued a withering riposte, which kind of crystallised the problem. And it's something which is used against the, the Labour Party a lot because it has the sting of truth. And that was that up in Scotland, we were seen as the branch office. And I think that is very, very true. And I think partly that was masked by the fact that we had big Scottish names in the cabinet, Gordon Brown as um, chancellor and then, of course, prime minister. I think that gave people a false sense of security that actually it's fine. Scotland is right at the heart of the Labour Party. But actually, the the infrastructure in Scotland wasn't tended to particularly well. We weren't listening to the concerns that people were bringing up um, in Scotland. So there was all of that going on then you had this kind of seismic and um, political clash of the indie referendum in 2014. And I think a lot of the problems we're seeing now across the whole of the UK because of Brexit, the blueprint for that was the 2014 um, indie referendum. It's the first time we had a referendum to settle a big, big constitutional matter in a long, long time. 
It was a moment where social media really collided with a big sort of constitutional political moment like that. The, I think that's one of the points where when the history books are written about online trolling, that will be quite an important sort of beginning point. I mean, it was going on before that, but, you know, the the the, the furious debates on social media, the launch of the, what's known as the cyber nats that a lot of SMPs get kind of um, upset about. But that that... That whole, a bit like Brexit, kind of shone a light on how inadequate the Labour leadership was in 20, kind of between 2016 and 2019. The Scottish referendum absolutely exposed how weak the Labour Party was in Scotland and how we hadn't really done any big thinking about this really huge issue that had been brewing up. Now, the fact that the Labour Party decided to do what was known as this Better Together campaign, which was sort of a cross party campaign. So you would have Ed Miliband campaigning with David Cameron and Nick Clegg. Now, that in itself was not an ignoble idea, but the problem was that people in Scotland, particularly because they were very much smarting from all the austerity stuff, they just looked at Ed Miliband and it allowed the SNP to frame a narrative and an argument which was like they're all the same. They basically look the same. They sound the same. They went to the same kind of schools. They all studied the same thing at university. They're pretty much married to the same woman. They're basically all the same. And that narrative did come up again and again and again. And it was very... And I remember, I just remember on the night that the result came through in the wee hours of the morning and the union won by a sizable amount, you know, something was like kind of around 10 points. And everybody was cheering away and Alistair Darling was being fated and all the people that, you know, um, were part of the campaign were like, yeah, yeah, we've done it, we've done it. And I remember getting driven back to Labour HQ and I said to this guy, I'm, he was like, why are you so down? We won. We won. It's great. We won. Like, we're quids in now. I said, I don't know if we are, because I said, what about all the doors we've just knocked on in safe Labour seats in Glasgow? They've always voted for us. And every single door we knocked on, they said, there's no way we want independence and we want the SNP and we hate you. And he's like, listen, Hen, don't worry about it. You know, they'll always come home. They will all, who, who are they going to vote for? Who are they going to vote? They're always going to come home. It's Labour. It's Labour. It's Glasgow. It's Labour. And then, of course, we had the 2015 general election campaign, which was like a sort of bloodbath that night. And our arrogance, we didn't even see it coming. On the night of the 2015 general election campaign, we had this, the Labour Party threw this really lavish party for our kind of high um, worth donors, celebrities, those kind of people. It was at County Hall. And I remember going there with my boss, um, Harriet Harman. And it was meant to be, you know, champagne and, you know, really fancy pants. And we got there just as they announced the results had been announced for Scotland. And there was this absolute funereal silence as we saw people like, you know, Douglas Alexander lose their seats. And it was like, wow, we have so misjudged this. So let's say for some of our international viewers, uh, they might not understand the sort of relevance. My accent. Of, no, no. <laughs> They might not understand the relevance of Scotland to Labour and to, to Parliament. Is there a path to Parliament for Labour that doesn't include Scotland? No. It's very, very difficult for the Labour Party to win an overall majority and I think have the moral mandate to govern for the whole of the country without winning um, seats in Scotland. And for um, your listeners who don't know the history of the Labour Party, Scotland is sort of the birthplace 
of the Labour movement, Keir Hardy, um, you know, who is arguably one of the, 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 the founders of the Labour Party, that all came from the struggle of working class people in Scotland. So Scotland has always been, you know, a huge, huge part of, of the movement. And the fact that we are so weak in Scotland now, the fact that we are kind of on life support in Scotland at the moment really kind of shows you just how far we've fallen. And I don't know if we will ever be able to climb back. So Corbyn got the nomination, became elected Labour leader. Talk me through the early days of that. And, you know, obviously Labour was still smarting in Scotland. Was Corbyn the solution to that? So I think in the beginning... A lot of people in Scotland were very, very positive about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, lots of my friends up there were like, you know, I, I quite like this, the, the, the look of this and the sound of this guy. Um, a lot of people did buy into the narrative that, you know, Labour had become austerity light. That was a very, very strong argument prosecuted by the SNP and it was very effective. So they were like, and also I think, I don't want to make a sweeping generalisation, but I think Scotland is definitely feels much more comfortable with socialism as a concept. And if not socialism, I don't know, a, a more communitarian form of politics. So in the difference, I'd say, with like when you go out campaigning in Scotland, not every part of Scotland, but certainly the central belt, the, the west coast, it probably changes um, the more kind of northeast you go. So when you're campaigning in like the south of England and you know, you talk about ben people talk about people being on benefits like it's a really bad thing. In Scotland, that is not the kind of at all. Like people know people in their family, in their communities who have been on social security, partly because of deindustrialization and all of that kind of stuff. It's not kind of seen as in such a sort of, you know, as such a crime. To, so Scotland was, you know, the sort of mentality of the left in Scotland was absolutely, you know, open to Corbynism right from the start. And I had friends, by the way, who voted for independence and were quite down the SNP route, who were going, oh, actually, I'll give Labour a second look with Corbyn. Lot, quite a lot of people joined um, local constituency Labour parties as part of that kind of... So there was, there, was a, there was a bit of kind of excitement. He was having big rallies up in Scotland as well. So there was definitely some of that kind of excitement. But I think where things started to go very badly wrong for the Corbyn project was um, a couple of things. First of all, um, the stuff about his background started to come out. And for a lot of people, particularly, again, in the west coast of, of Scotland, um, there's a lot of people from Northern Ireland there. Um, anybody who knows anything about football and Rangers and Celtic, there is a kind of a religious divide there, which bleeds into sort of politics. So his connections with the IRA went down really badly on the doorstep for a lot of people. That came up time and time again. I heard it. Myself. I mean, at one point I was door knocking, um, and this this kind of wee old woman was like, "Get away, get away! I don't want to. I don't want to talk about politics." And she said, "Where are you from?" I said, I'm "From the Labour Party." And she went, "Are you here representing Jeremy Corbyn?" And I was like, "Well, kind of." She went, "Hang on a minute," and she 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 basically came round from her garden to just scream at me about the IRA, and then all her neighbours started gathering round and started screaming at me about the IRA as well. And I was like, okay. This is a thing. This is not just like a made-up media myth. This People are very, very upset about this. Then I think the next thing um, as well was the anti-Semitism because even though, you know, there's not a huge 
Jewish community in um, Glasgow and Scotland, although there is um, in one particular area, in fact, where my sort of parents live, which is East Renfrewshire, um, people didn't, people really didn't like that at all. I think um, the Scots have a strong sense of fairness and um, a strong sense of, you know, solidarity with other sort of minority groups. Um, and then the final thing, which I think was really devastating, was Brexit. The fact that Scotland was largely a Remain country, not entirely, but largely a Remain country, and it was a Remain country on two levels. One was economic, and the second was um, cultural. It was about being kind of open. Um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, to her credit, I don't agree with everything she says, but the one thing I do think she deserves credit for is she was pretty much the only politician who's making a very, very strong case for the fact that Scotland does need more immigration to grow its economy. The kind of working age population is actually in decline in Scotland. And so that was something that a lot of Scottish people felt very, very strongly about. And they were feeling like the Conservatives were not listening to them. Nicola, um, Nicola Sturgeon was getting nowhere with Theresa May. And then Corbyn was ignoring them as well. The fact that we had no solid, clear position on Brexit. A lot of people in Scotland wanted Labour to be the Remain party. They kind of wanted to go to, to Labour for that reason. And we were not we were not we were obsessed with the north of England, but we seemed to forget that there was a place north of the north of England called Scotland, which was Remain, and we had voters there that we had to convince. And then the other thing, of course, which is always just is going to hang over Scottish politics for a long time, is of course the independence question. You know, what is Labour's position going to be on having a second referendum? What is Labour's position going to be on Scotland leaving the United Kingdom? Seeing as <clears throat> Labour can't really get into power with an overall majority without Scotland. I mean, is the deck already stacked against Jeremy Corbyn? Was there anything he could have done? Because there's no way he could move Labour to being a pro-independence party because that would mean that Labour no longer has any seats in Scotland and therefore cannot bring those seats to Parliament. So, you know... Is it was it quite a difficult position to be in? Oh, anyway? it was a really hard position to be in, and it was a very you know Ed found himself in the same in the same situation. So, I don't. I think to be fair, I think it would have been hard for any politician to have um, overcome the obstacles that already were very structurally entrenched. But a couple of other things happened, which I think didn't help the cause. So there was a leadership contest in Scotland. And um, all of Jeremy Corbyn's outriders really, really backed a guy called Richard Leonard. Um, there's a, a very popular, well, he's not actually very popular, but he's a big Corbyn outrider. Aaron Bastini famously tweeted saying, um, if if Richard Leonard gets um, elected, just watch sort of Scottish politics, you know, watch Labour sort of rise in Scotland. Save this tweet. Yes. It, it was a very famous kind of tweet. And actually, you know, the power of... So what ended up happening is the might of the Corbyn machine convinced a lot of Labour members in Scotland to vote for Richard Leonard. I do actually think if, you know, if someone else had had the shot, a much more charismatic... Say, I think Anna Sawa was the other candidate going up against Richard um, Leonard, who's, you know, a very impressive um, young uh, Muslim politician in Scotland. You know, he's got a great hinterland there. I think he could have put up a better fight... 
Richard Leonard um, is a very, very nice guy, but he has got no public recognition whatsoever. He has absolutely, you know, he's like a little mouse compared to sort of the ferocity of of Nicola um, Sturgeon. And I think that has absolutely not helped the, the situation at all. And the second thing that really undermined the Labour Party in Scotland was that John MacDonald last summer went up to um, the Edinburgh Festival and took part in a comedy fringe show. It was a sort of talk show hosted by LBC presenter Ian Dale. And he was asked about having um, a second referendum. And he sort of made policy on the hoof. He basically kind of indicated, I can't remember exact words, that actually, yeah, maybe that is something that the Labour Party in Scotland should be should get behind. Now, he did not consult Richard Leonard. He did not consult the equivalent of the National Executive Committee in Scotland. He did not consult the trade union movement. I mean, this is a huge divisive issue in Scotland. Families still row about this. Friends and colleagues still can't broach the divide on this subject. And you've got somebody who just pops up from London, you know, to do a you know a comedy show and then just drops that massive bombshell people went nuts about it in in Scotland and of course it further humiliated you know the 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 scant um you know resources and respect that the existing Scottish political party uh, the labor party had was just that they were humiliated by the whole thing so it it is hard and i think whoever wins um the leadership contest they have to think seriously about Scotland. And in the you know we've we've heard a number of hustings, and Scotland has hardly come up. Um, so there used to be a saying um, that there have been more people in space than there have uh, Tory politicians, uh, Tory MPs in Scotland. Um, obviously, after twenty seventeen, I believe uh, those numbers changed a bit. Um, pushing Labour from being the biggest party in Scotland down to being the third biggest behind the SNP and the Tories. Did the Tories become the party of the unionists in Scotland? Um, and did they take Labour votes in the same way that Brexit took Labour votes away from the Red Wall, Northern Heartlands, as it were? They certainly did um, in uh, 2017. I knew a number of people in Scotland who would never, in a, you know, would would hate the idea of voting Tory, but they they did it because they felt it was the only credible unionist um, party at the time. Um, I mean, that then slipped back at the last general election, and the Tories did lose seats in in Scotland, so they didn't they didn't really hold all those seats. But look, this is going to be the issue of the day dominating Scottish politics. And it's not good enough for the Labour Party to just go, oh, you know, um, what about, you know, look, the SNP is so dominant in Scotland. Many journalists are fearful of them. Many elements of civic society, because they get so much funding from the SNP, are very, very loath to speak out about their record. So there is something kind of, you know, quite sort of mendacious going on in terms of the lack of scrutiny on the SNP and everything is not going brilliantly in Scotland. There are huge problems with the health service, huge problems in terms of educational standards as well. However, this constitutional question is not going to go away and it's not good enough for an English politician. And I'm afraid it does matter that how the Scots see it. They will see it as somebody from England preaching to them about what's best for them. And I think that whoever wins... I don't think they should rush to make an early um, decision about what they're going to do, but they will have to make a clear decision. The huge mistake that we made over Brexit was at the end, 
It didn't matter what our position was. It was so confusing. We were, we tried to be all things to all people and we were like nothing to anybody. It was, it was just the worst of all worlds. Now, if the Labour Party wants to continue to be a unionist party, and that is a completely noble, I mean, I am very torn about what to do about Scotland. In my, my, I would like us to stay part of the union, but I do recognise the sands are shifting in Scotland. I mean, I go up there a lot. My family are all there. Most of my kind of best friends live up there. My, you know, my immediate family's all there. I know people who were staunch unionists in 2014 who have now said they have definitely changed their minds. And these are working class people. They are trade unionists. They are people who, you know, saw all the economic arguments, but they just feel something has shifted in Westminster. And now that there is this, you know, huge conservative majority, they do not feel Boris Johnson represents them as a political entity. They do want to have more sort of autonomy. It's not good enough for the Labour Party to just dismiss that. You have to find a way of engaging with it positively. And one of the the um, the tropes or the sort of slogans that all the candidates are saying is they're going, it's really important that we give people power. We give people agency over, you know, the things that really matter to them in terms of local government, in terms of Westminster feels very alien. But at the same time, if you're just going to completely say to people in Scotland, no, sorry, we're just closing off any discussion about having a second referendum, then that is like a complete contradiction. So I just think this is going to be a very, very difficult issue. And I, I think the way to sort of understand how people are feeling in Scotland and the party is feeling and people who were once, you know, being part of the Labour Party in Scotland was like being, it was like in your blood. It was like you had your social events around it, your family. It was, it was more than just political. It was social. It was, it was so, it was everything. And if we want to try and sort of get that back we have to do a huge amount of work but part, but any Labour leader who wins they should spend some serious time in Scotland and they should spend some time actually listening and talking to people from the movement who like are rooted in Scotland we have had we've got amazing Scottish um, politicians councillors members of the Scottish Parliament they all want to be part of the conversation. It feels very patronising just be making sort of pronouncements from England on their future. As we understand it, there's no route to power for Labour without Scotland. The Tories are now pretty much in charge of the country and they have a huge majority. My question to you is, does independence for Scotland seem like an inevitability? Again, this is a real sort of head and heart question. It doesn't feel like, uh, on a practical level, it feels like it's not inevitable because the Prime Minister of the day can just keep refusing to grant them a referendum. So there is a very practical legal obstacle. The head, the heart thing is very, very different. There is The more that happens the more the kind of howl of betrayal gets louder and louder and the more seductive that becomes to people. And if the SNP, we've, there's, there's big um, elections coming up, um, I think it's not next year, it's the year after, in terms of the um, Scottish Parliament. If they win hugely and have an absolute kind of landslide off the back of wanting a second referendum then it gets harder to, um, you know, when you when, when the Conservatives just given it the big one about, you know, respecting the will of the people and 
your right to choose your future destiny as a as a nation, um, then I think that argument becomes more difficult. I don't know if it's in the bag that if we have that second referendum that the independence lot would necessarily win it. It very much depends how Brexit shakes down. If Brexit is an absolute disaster, then that kind of strengthens the sort of SNP's line that we've got to get out of it. But a lot of people will feel very, very nervous about, you know, if about breaking away, you know, if, if it's proven so difficult for the UK to break away, and basically England is our biggest trading partner, it's going to be very squeamish. A lot of people are going to feel squeamish about it. So I don't think the outcome is necessarily kind of sort of predetermined. But I do feel sort of in my waters or in my bones, I do feel that in my lifetime, I think Scotland probably will be independent. And I may probably move there. <laughs> so my last question to you, Aisha, is how does Labour fix its problems in Scotland? What does the new Labour leader have to do to rebuild those bridges? So I think the I think the solution is not just Scotland specific. I think the the new if we have a successful Labour leader, he or she will deploy the same tactics across the whole of the country to win back trust. And I think the first thing, by the way, it's not about having a fancy manifesto now. We're we're far far away from doing that. I think the first thing is is to send a signal to the public, and that is Scotland as much as you know, like Kent that we're like a serious political party and we have got to clean up the party first. We've got to get rid of the anti-Semitism. We've got to get rid of the bullying. We've got to get rid of the sort of demonic authoritarianism that that hounds people. We've got to stop being a frightening party. So that is the absolute, you know, until we do that, we're not even going to have get permission to be heard on all the other stuff. So that is the de minimis. And that is a big job, by the way. That might take somebody five years to do that is the first thing the second thing is that they have got to sort of go out and listen to people we've got to stop this um top down we know best from the leader's office and i'm going to be fair to corbyn this was not just jeremy corbyn this was ed Miliband. this was gordon brown this was tony blair this has been going on for a long long time you know our leaders have to understand that wisdom does not just reside amongst a very small group of people in the leader's office and their cronies. You know, there is a wealth of understanding, lived experience, people who have got kind of grit under their fingernails because they are so hewn in their communities. They have to listen to those sort of people. Um, and that takes time. You can't just fake those relationships. They take time in the diary they take you know I'm actually not I'm going to be prepared to spend a bit of time away from London going around to get to know these people understand the issues and then you have to off the back of that start pulling together a policy package and a vision for the country which um is I mean I'm not even going to say radical because I think that's just become a cheap word now it doesn't have to be something that just appeals to people and will make People don't actually, I think people are quite scared of radical change. I think people want their, people realise how hard it is for even things to get just even a wee bit better. Put forward something which is, you know, credible, which will work, which will make people's lives better and, and make people feel like you've got some chance of, of, of delivering it. The lack of trust over this kind of um, smorgasbord of you know black friday sort of manifesto have it all have it for free people aren't stupid um so i think that's what they've got to do but 
be under no illusion, this is such a long route back. And there may be a point that, you know, Scotland for the Labour Party is 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 lost. It's it's definitely not going to be easy. And I do think at some point they need to get a leader in Scotland who is respected, who has got some charisma, who the people of Scotland can identify with. Um, because you can't just do everything from the national leader. You know, we should have we you know we should have a strong leader in Wales, we should have a strong leader in Westminster, we should have a strong leader in Hollywood. That should be how the Labour Party operates. We've got to move away from this kind of cult of sort of one person thank you so much for joining us aisha thank you thank you for listening to part one of corbynism the post-mortem our show is proudly sponsored by the media masters podcast a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names hosted by paul blanchard you can find them over at mediamasters.fm and now for part two so the last man in scotland thanks for coming on ian it's nice to meet you my pleasure great to be on so let's start with the positives and then we'll we'll work our way through the rest. What did Corbynism get right? Well, that's an interesting question. I suppose the three things that he got right uh, was creating the mass movement. I mean, 580,000 members that are currently fully paid up members of the Labour Party is quite an achievement uh, in terms of building that. Now, whether or not it's directed in the right way is a different story, but that's certainly a positive I think the second thing he got right was the continuation of the narrative that started with Ed Miliband, that the economic model in this country doesn't work for the majority. I think everyone would agree with that. Whether or not the prescriptions were the right conclusion to that is is, is something we can maybe discuss, but I think that was also correct. And I also think the issues around putting climate and mental health at the top of the political agenda were two things on a policy perspective that he got absolutely right. So there are positives in there. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but an 80-seat Conservative majority is the legacy of that period of time in the Labour Party. What has gone wrong for Labour in Scotland? Well, I mean, it's constitutional. There is no doubt about that. Uh, People still go to the ballot booth and in some degree or other have in their own mind the constitutional issues of independence when they vote. Now, for some people, it's the only issue and the most important issue. For other people, it ranks two, three, four or five, but there is still that influence. So if you look at the polling up until about August 2014, Labour were still sitting on between 35 and 40 percent, which is what they've sat on for decades in terms of the Scottish vote. As soon as the referendum came along in September 2014, it halved. And it sort of bumped along 20 to 25, 27, 28 percent since. So... The constitutional issues have completely dwarfed the Labour Party in Scotland. It's paralysed it. And we haven't really been able to articulate what our vision is for Scotland constitutionally in the future. And I think that's part of the problem. And part of my job, again, as the only Scottish Labour MP, but also if I'm able to become Deputy Leader of the UK Party, is to try and articulate what that positive vision for the future is that isn't independence and isn't unionism. How did you keep hold of your seat um, while other Scottish Labour MPs lost theirs? And you, you did that twice, obviously. Yeah, hand out cash at polling stations. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, Edinburgh South is a constituency. It's like a microcosm of the whole of Scotland. And just after the uh, election, uh, someone rather accusatory, it certainly sounded accusatory, sort of pointed their finger at me and said, the only reason you win your seat is by pulling Conservative, Lib Dem and Nationalist voters to vote for you. Well... I don't think that should be an accusation. I think that should be a congratulations. And I think that's what we need to do across the country. So I've been able to do that. There's a whole host of other factors too, of course. Um, a lot of people vote for me because they are against independence. 
they know that I have very, very strong Remain credentials. I mean, I helped set up the People's Vote campaign right at the start. I've been probably Scotland's most prominent Remain MP. So all of that, 80% Remain constituency, nearly 70% uh, stay in the UK constituency. So it's those factors and a lot of local factors as well. But uh, campaigning every week, campaigning on local issues, talking to people and listening to them and responding is something the Labour Party should really needs to learn from. What was the difference between the 2017 and 2019 elections for Scotland? Well, I think in 17, um, in the Scottish context, we had really settled our constitutional position in Scotland. So everyone knew we were no to independence, no to a second independence referendum. Now, that had taken a lot of work to get there, and it wasn't easy. But I think that sort of set some of that aside. On top of all of that, uh, in terms of the Scottish context, Brexit wasn't really as prevalent. I mean, I looked out my, nine, my 2017 leaflets and I was saying, you know, we're leaving, but let's leave on the least worst option of the single market and the customs union and let's not give Theresa May back then as it was at the time a blank cheque to do what she wants in terms of Europe. So those messages were an awful lot clearer. By the time we get to 2019, the public are less uh, enamoured by Jeremy Corbyn. They don't really want to see him walking through Downing Street. They can't imagine him walking through Downing Street. Brexit position is fudged, our Scottish independence position is fudged, our credibility is not as good as it could be, if not completely trashed. The brand of the Labour Party is not great, anti-Semitism, the list is endless. So I think that two-year period between 17 and 19, people gave Jeremy Corbyn a chance in 17, but by 19 they had made their mind up. Seeing as the decline in Scotland started under the previous leadership, is it fair to blame Labour's current performance there on, on Corbyn? Well, I think you reflect on what's happening across the whole of the country, not just isolate Scotland. This was a UK general election, and what's happened across the UK is certainly a problem for the leadership, a problem for the policy platform, a problem for the party's credibility, a problem for the way it campaigns. You know, the list is endless in terms of how difficult that's been. Of course, the decline in Scotland has been much longer than that, but it started fundamentally in 2014 at the independence referendum because constitutional politics is paralysing the whole of Scotland and still is, we're still talking about it. And if you reflect back to 2010, when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister and lost the election, he returned 41 out of 41 Scottish Labour MPs. So you can the decline didn't happen then, it happened afterwards. And what I think has also happened is Scots used to have in their own mind that, and this goes back to 2007 when the SNP first took power in Scotland, um, they would vote SNP in Scottish elections, but vote Labour at UK elections. After 2014, that broke down. They continued to vote SNP at UK elections. What does Labour need to do to win back Scottish votes? Well, it's got to articulate a very principled position on the Constitution. I mean, you can't have a situation a few weeks before a general election when the Shadow Chancellor goes to Edinburgh Festival and does a lunchtime chat show and decides to change our constitutional position. A, against the wishes of the party, B, against the wishes of the Scottish Labour Party, and C, without telling anyone. So I think if you articulate a strong position on the constitution, you can say to people, look, we might principally disagree on this, but we are principally against this, and this is why. I think the second thing is we need to articulate a much more positive vision for the future. And that's not just about the constitution. That's about a whole host of other things, including how bad independence would be for Scotland. We tend to get wrapped up in these constitutional arguments of process rather than substance. And the third thing is, if we look as if we can be a credible alternative government at Westminster, Scots will vote for it. Is Labour in real trouble if Scotland does go independent? Well, Labour's in real trouble if Scotland doesn't start producing Scottish Labour MPs as a starting point. And of course it's in trouble if, if, if Scotland's independent. Scotland's in trouble if Scotland's independent, in my view. 
A Labour government still runs through Scotland. It's just a mathematical fact of British politics. Um, give you an example. If Scotland only returns one Scottish Labour MP at the 2024 election, we have to win every single seat in England up to Jacob, up to and including Jacob Rees-Mogg in North East Somerset. That's a 13% swing, unprecedented in political history. Any kind of swing near that, never mind 13%. If we return 16, which would be a 16-fold increase, which is also an ambitious target, we have to win everything up to Croydon South, which is an 11% swing. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the percentage, but I think in 1997, Blair only got nine. So that's the real uphill struggle. That's the analysis of what needs to be done. So Scotland is critically important to the rest of the UK and critically important to delivering a Labour government. What did the Scottish electorate make of Jeremy Corbyn? Well, they've had their say, haven't they? I mean, I, I can't really talk for other constituencies in Scotland. I can just talk for the anecdotal information that was coming back to me from former colleagues and from candidates. And to varying degrees, the number one issue on the doorstep was the leadership of the Labour Party. It certainly wasn't mine. We spoke to over 11,000 people over the course of the general election campaign. Um, I'd be very surprised if it wasn't two and three, three and four, who were telling us that the number one reason that they weren't voting for the Labour Party was because of Jeremy Corbyn. So that is just an undeniable fact. People might have different experience all over the country, but what I've heard from John O'Groats to Land's End and everything in between was that that was the thing that, in the views of somebody who lost, torpedoed the election for them locally. And what were the sort of issues that people were raising on the doorstep about Jeremy? Well, I had people in tears about anti-Semitism. I had people in tears about the policy platform that just seemed to be about giveaways. Uh, people were angry that the Brexit position was fudged and had taken too long to get to where it got to. In the end, it was actually a relatively good position. They were angry about what was happening at conference in terms of the issues that were being raised. Um, they were angry about the team, the wider team. Um, and they were angry about the fact that Jeremy Corbyn didn't seem to want to reach out to his own party, let alone the country. It was all of that stuff, and it all boils down to credibility. On to broader topics now. What are the biggest issues you had with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party? Well, I think that um, rather than speaking to the country, Jeremy wanted to speak to the party. And the way he spoke to the party was to settle 30-year-old scores. It was about purging. It was about intimidation. It was about bullying. It was about cleansing the party of anybody who didn't agree with him. Um, and then when you do that, the public look in to the party with shock and horror. And the example of that is the anti-Semitism issue. Now, there'll be lots of arguments about the process of how it should be dealt with. But the bottom line is it just has to be dealt with and has to be dealt with quickly and effectively. And the big question is not anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and a lot of the bullying and intimidation that's going on. The issue is what kind of environment has the leadership of the Labour Party created where those kind of people feel comfortable being a member? And not just being a member on the fringes, but being a member right at the heart of it. <clears throat> and that's that's part of the issue I have got with Jeremy's leadership. His worldview was strange because the worldview that he had t- told the public that he didn't really like his own country, didn't sing the national anthem, was very anti-royal family, was very ar- anti-armed forces, was very pro-Russia, uh, very you know pro the people of the, the people of this country would think aren't really our friends. So all of that just adds to a pot that people just say, we don't see this man as being able to walk through number 10. And the real acid test of that is 
the public preferred Boris Johnston. And that, to me, says that something's gone terribly wrong in the Labour Party. Now, critics listening in might say, well, you know, you're you're a long-standing Corbyn critic, so of course you'd say that, of course you'd say he's pro-Russia, of course you'd say... But what were your experiences of dealing with the leadership? You know, you were under his leadership for four and a half years, so what were your experiences of dealing with him behind the scenes in the PLP meetings, you know, trying to get your point across for maybe, example, Salisbury or Syria or anti-Semitism, some of the bigger issues that came across? Well, um, actually, that's a very easy and quick thing to answer because I had no dealings with him whatsoever. I mean, the only time I really spoke to Jeremy was after the 2017 election when we returned seven Scottish MPs. And the conversation I had with him that he had a pathway to Downing Street if he wished to take it, but he would have to change direction. And he decided not to do that. Um, and then I said to him, look, I, I'm not being deliberately obstructive because I want a Labour government as much as he does. But if he's not going to listen to the public and reflect on that and then change direction, the public will ultimately have their say. And they did on the 12th of December. And it wasn't pretty. So it wasn't criticism for criticism's sake. And a lot of the uh, strong criticisms I had of, of Jeremy Corbyn were on his cat-handed approach to Brexit his cat-handed approach to the Constitution in Scotland, the way that he treated colleagues and didn't deal with anti-Semitism, the way in which he gave the perception, it may not have been the reality, but he gave the perception to the Parliamentary Labour Party and to Parliament that this was just a unnecessary inconvenience, or a necessary inconvenience. And that, that's really frustrating, particularly when there's big issues out there that have to be resolved and there's people with serious concerns about them. He used to come to PLP meetings and read out his diary, you know, it was just a complete disdain. So there was no bridge building at all. And people might say that, that you know, he had a right to do that because the, the PLP, the perception was that the PLP was always against him. But leadership starts at the top. I can't provide that leadership as being a backbench Labour MP. He had to provide it from his office and he had no intention of doing that. It became a battle between them and everyone else. And that battle wasn't created by everyone else. So uh, you talked a bit about them, the, the the sort of his leadership team, as it were. Can you talk to me a bit about you know how they how they managed the party, in your opinion? Well, the management of the party became, in my view, um, a task of trying to find a way of providing political purity. Um, the Labour Party's always been a broad church. It's three or four, five, six, seven, how many parties you like cobbled together under Labour values. There's, there's lots of wings of the party. Richard Bergen says something quite interesting. He says, you know, the Labour Party's like a plane, you need, but you need the left wing and the right wing to fly. And most people sit in the fuselage in the middle. So, you know, what they wanted was they wanted to cut off the right wing and, you know, cleanse the fuselage and just have this project, which angered a lot of people, not because it wasn't something that, Jeremy didn't have the entitlement to do as leader of the party, but the public were telling us they didn't want it. And if you don't listen to the public, you get the ultimate result, and that's what we got. So the running of the party wasn't even about um, winning an election, in my view, because if you really seriously wanted to win an election, you wouldn't call it in the Prime Minister's terms two weeks before Christmas, when Brexit is the biggest issue, when you have data in front of you from private polling that says you're going to lose badly. So the argument that seems to be theorised, and I've seen this leaked NEC document, was that it was Brexit what done it. Um, you know, Jeremy was super popular in 2017, even though he lost the election. 
um, and they gained all these millions of votes for Jeremy and they loved Jeremy, but Brexit happened and then and then they lost. This is the sort of what appears to be the official party post-mortem. On our post-mortem, what do you think of that? Well, let's take the hypothetical scenario that that NEC report is correct. Why on earth then would you call an election before Brexit's done? Because if it was Brexit that sank the Labour Party on the 12th of December, and that's what the data was telling the shadow cabinet and the leadership that we were going to be sunk, I think the data showed they'd go down to 160 seats. And if they were fearful that this would be a Brexit election, why did they agree to it? So they can't have it both ways. My own analysis of the election was that in 2017, um, people were willing to give Jeremy Corbyn a chance. Um, They weren't willing to give Theresa May the blank cheque that she wanted. She still won the election, don't forget. Um, And Brexit wasn't as prevalent an issue, but then it became a prevalent issue and people were saying, "Okay, Jeremy, now that Brexit is the prevalent issue of the day, what leadership are you showing to, in the national interest, to oppose this government and to get us out of this mess. And the answer to that was, Leavers thought we were Remain, Remainers thought we were Leave. And that feeds into leadership and credibility. So it's a circular argument to a certain extent. So you are running for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party. What are you offering that divorces from Corbynism? Well, I'm saying quite clearly, look, we, let's start from a position of honesty. If As long as we start from a position of honesty, we've got an opportunity to move forward. And the honest position is that leadership of the Labour Party was the biggest impediment to the Labour Party winning the election. And therefore, let's resolve that. So I'm saying quite clearly, if, if there's people out there that have got a vote who think that continuity is going to take us into Downing Street in 2024, then don't vote for me because the public are telling us they don't want the continuity. Now, that's not to say we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to listen to people and respond, and then we have to bring forward a policy platform that's rooted in Labour values but talks about the future. It also, it's about organisation. A deputy leader's got to be about organisation, organisation, organisation. There's no other word for it. Um, I want to bring the organisation that I do in South Edinburgh to the rest of the country. I want to reinvigorate regional directors and regional offices. I want to give power down in the Labour Party, the places that need it to make the decisions most. Never again when we go into an election when we're not ready. Um, And I want to take on some of these big constitutional questions. And I think the deputy leader has a real responsibility to do that, including grievance procedures and ridding the party of anti-Semitism. So my pitch to the selector out there is... If you want change, I'm the change candidate. If you want someone who can organise and win a marginal seat, it's me. If you want a Scottish voice to send out the message that all the nations and regions of the UK are important, then vote for me. And the third thing is, get us on the ballot paper. This new democratised party that everybody keeps talking about might have a ballot paper with just two names on it. That doesn't seem to me a democratised party. So that seems to me the machine-shutting down debate. So let's um, <coughs> get me on the ballot paper and let the members decide. You raised anti-Semitism there. I understand you had a meeting this week with Jenny Formby and the issue was raised. Can you talk me uh, through that meeting? Well, it was an anti-Semitism briefing from Jenny. It wasn't really a meeting in that sense. Um, And she wanted to run through with the team the process and procedures that are in place in terms of what the party have, the the facts and figures, um, and what the party have been doing about this since 2018. So... It was a briefing on that basis. Um, There was nothing in there that was controversial or otherwise. The team seemed to be doing a good job of wading through the masses of anti-Semitism cases that they've got. Um, The big questions that arose was about the ECHR um, investigation, which won't report till the middle of this year, Um, and um, police complaints and and those kinds of issues. Um, I'm still not convinced that the Labour Party's got a handle on this yet. 
Um, not from the staffing perspective, but I just think the volume of it. And the volume of it itself tells you there's a problem. And how on earth have we managed as a Labour Party, the party of equality and opportunity in this country, created an environment where anti-Semites think not only is it appropriate to join, but they can get away with that kind of behaviour. So as I understand it, um, the Jewish Chronicle reported that Lisa Nandy had asked to see the EHRC's response. And uh, as I understand it, according to the reporting, Jenny Formby refused. Is that correct? Well, you know, Lisa can speak for herself, and it was a private meeting, but um, Lisa did raise those concerns. Lisa asked if the leadership candidates could see the Labour Party's submission, uh, and that was refused, and refused on the reason under the reason that the Labour Party have had uh, legal advice that all of this should be kept private until such time as the ECHR reports. Now, People can make their own judgment about that. Um, uh, Jenny then said that the uh, leadership, the deputy leadership previously, uh, had been offered that they could see the the, the responses uh, and the submissions, and the shadow cabinet had been offered the same. Um, Emily Thornberry was in the room and said she wasn't aware that that had been offered to the shadow cabinet, but she couldn't one hundred percent confirm that. So, look, if the leadership candidates feel it would be beneficial to see what the party is saying about anti-Semitism, which I think is the right thing to do. So lots of questions coming up at Hustings on this. Then the party should probably let them see it in an environment where they can't take it away and they can just read what's happened. Let's uh, stay on the EHRC investigation. Um, let's say a ruling comes down from the EHRC that is especially damning of the Labour leadership's role. You're elected deputy leader. What are the next steps from that uh, from those findings because some of the candidates have said that they would um, of course implement in full the findings however it's this is a statutory investigation you have to implement this legally you have to implement it so beyond just implementing what they say how will the party cleanse itself of the stain of being found guilty of discriminating against Jews well I mean let's not jump the gun in terms of what it says um, and you're right, it is a statutory inquiry and therefore we have to implement. I think we should go further. Um, the first thing I think we should do is apologise. The whole Labour movement should apologise for even being investigated, let alone what the report says. I think whatever happens, uh, there'll be lots and lots of discussion about the process and the procedure of what you do about these kinds of cases. That really, to me, is a bit irrelevant. Let's just get the process that works uh, if we need an independent process, fine. If we don't, that's also fine. If we need an independent appeals process, it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is we just have to rid the party of this cancer. And the, EC, the, the report that comes out will give the party the platform to apologise, to implement, and then to resolve it. Um, and as deputy leader, I've made the commitment that I will take personal responsibility for resolving these. My final question to you. If the Labour membership decides to vote for a continuity Corbyn candidate, what happens next for the Labour Party? Well, the public have sent a warning sign, haven't they? And if the party doesn't respond to what the public are screaming at them, then the party will be a diminishing party of opposition. 203 seats might be the high watermark, not the low watermark for the party in that scenario. And that's why I'm saying that, you know, if you want to vote for continuity candidates... You can do that, but the consequences could be severe. We've got elections coming up in May. The latest opinion poll has the Tories nearly on 50%. So the membership have to be very clear that they're going to do something 
that either does one of two things, takes us to a position of a credible alternative government, where 203 seats is the lowest we ever go, or takes us to a diminishing party of perpetual opposition. And if they decide to go for the latter, I fear not just for the future of the Labour Party, but the future of the country. Thanks very much for joining me, Ian. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Corbynism the Postmortem. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy. I'd like to give a special thanks to my guests, Aisha Hazarika and Ian Murray, and I hope to catch you all again on next week's episode. This episode was kindly sponsored by the wonderful Media Masters podcast, hosted by Paul Blanchard. The show is a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, and you can find out more at mediamasters.fm. Thanks for tuning in.